Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Max Galeen of the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Sussex. He's the author of the new book, Smugglers and States, Negotiating the Maghreb at Its Margins, which was just published uh, actually in my own series at Columbia University Press. Uh, Max, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me, both to the podcast and in your series. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. It's a great book, and we want to hear about it. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about kind of what was the origin of the book, and uh, you know what were you trying to achieve with it? Yeah, happy to. So it's it's a book about smuggling in North Africa across the past couple of decades, focused particularly on Tunisia and Morocco. It's based on a lot of field work. It's based on interviews with smugglers from different networks in both regions, but also street level bureaucrats, borderland communities, civil society. And it's trying to look at smuggling and how it works, how it's changing, but most importantly also what it can tell us about the political economy of uh, Tunisia and Morocco more broadly. And its starting point is really the observation that's within limits, and we can talk about that, Smuggling is quite regulated. That smuggling that we often think of as something that is kind of random, wild westy, under the radar of the state, is often quite tightly regulated by local informal institutions, by local deals and arrangements about what can be brought through where and when and for how much. That the vast majority of smugglers in North Africa over the last couple of decades have not spent as much time running away from the police as standing in line. And this is not something that I'm the first person to say or to notice, be it about smuggling in, in North Africa or elsewhere, it's, it's quite a common phenomenon, but it's quite counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted to do with the book, and that's also why it kind of needed a whole book, is to argue, okay, so when, then what does that mean? What does this tell us about the role of smuggling, the nature of, the, of smuggling, but also the nature of the states that engage with it? So what this book really tries to do then is, is build up a, a full political economy analysis of smuggling from these small institutions, these deals and arrangements that regulate smuggling in the borderlands, um, to the rents that are generated from it, to the people that get these rents, and all the way up to kind of the wider political settlements uh, in which smuggling is integrated. And it's trying to tell us not just about the political and economic effects of smuggling, but about its function. Um, and the classic assumption there is, is always that it's subversive. The classic assumption is that smuggling is something that's coming in from the outside into state building, into a political arrangement, that it's trying to uh, subvert it. There's a never-ending list of, of conspiracy theories uh, on smuggling in North Africa. Smugglers, if you just read these conspiracy theories, must be very busy people because they get accused of funding and or subverting pretty much any political party, political operation, protest, social movement in, in the region. And the book really tries to make the opposite argument. It argues that for better or for worse, smuggling has not necessarily been subversive, but it's been a feature of a particular mode of state building in the region. It's been a symptom of a particular mode of state building in the region. It has from a political economy perspective, been somewhat stabilizing. And consequently, we need to think a little bit differently about uh, its current position, about the fact that it is in crisis, and about how we engage with it. So that is broadly what the book is about. So before we get into the details of, of the cases and the theory, um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what do you mean by smuggling? What, what actually is being smuggled? Are we talking about weapons and, uh, and, and illegal migrants? Are we talking about cigarettes and gasoline? Like, what exactly do we mean when we're talking about smuggling here? So it's difficult to say what we mean, because we mean very different things, depending on who you talk to. Um, but I can say a little bit more what I mean and what the book is about. So... The first thing to say is this is a book about the smuggling of goods. It's not a book about the smuggling of people. I think it has some notes for how we understand the smuggling of people. I think it has some parallels. It has some insights and it uh, operates in the same spaces, but it is not primarily a book about the smuggling of people. There are other people who speak to that much better than I can and have, I think, an emotional resilience to researching that topic that um, I can only aspire to. So it's a book about the smuggling of goods, and it's primarily a book about the smuggling of quite ordinary goods. One of the primary misconceptions uh, that people have about smuggling, and particularly about smuggling in North Africa, 
is that most of what's smuggled is what we refer to as illicit goods. So guns and drugs and, um, and arms and uh, various other goods that uh, there is no legal trade route for. The reality is that these things very much exist and they are important and they're an important part of the story, but they are a small part of the story. If you look at everything else that's being traded illegally across North Africa's borders to go for the definition of Mm -hmm. smuggling there and historically for the last few decades gasoline has certainly been the most smuggled good in the region both in terms of its dollar value in terms of its quantity but i think most importantly and that's what my book is most interested in in terms of the number of people involved in it and the effects on their livelihoods and the effects of the livelihoods of border communities more broadly but it's not just gasoline but a whole swath of consumer goods that range from tea glasses to tea to Hello Kitty backpacks and tires and carpets, and I could go on for quite a while, um, many of which are produced either in East Asia or Turkey or in free trade zones um, and the Arabian Peninsula, and are then uh, shipped legally part of the way and then smuggled illegally in another part of the way. So again, before we get into like the theory and the cases, um, I think there's one question that a lot of people, especially uh, uh, graduate students, might want to ask, which is, you know, how do you go about studying something like this, something which, despite being regulated, is quite illegal? Um, you know, how, how do you do serious uh, kind of ethical field research um, in this kind of environment? I think slowly and with difficulty. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad the podcast doesn't have video, but my hairline has receded <laughs> substantially since starting working on this about a decade ago. And um, one of the things I'm very grateful to you two and, and to the editors too is that um, in the classic way of um, writing academic book these days is that you kind of hide your methodology or it, it kind of gets um, gets cut down quite a bit. And I did put a, a lengthy appendix into the book that tries to talk about this a little bit because I don't think we have a real discussion about how to study smuggling. And I don't think there's a good literature on that. So I did try to kind of make it make a small contribution to how I did it with um, an obviously awareness that there is limitations to this. And I think that's maybe also the first thing to say um, is that this is the book I was able to write. It is affected by who I am um, and uh, who I can talk to. And that comes with um, the advantages of my positionality, but it also comes with its disadvantages. There are multiple other books about smuggling in North Africa to be written. And I'm glad to say, I think some of them are being written um, that come with a different perspective. So I think accepting limitations is a really important part of it. Um, taking time is another part of it. One of the advantages that I had in doing research on this is that the two areas in which I did most of my work, which is um, the Medinin region in Tunisia and especially Bengardan, um, and the Oriental region in Morocco, and especially Ujda and Nador, are areas that historically have had an enormous amount of smuggling, and where smuggling has been a very, very central part of local economies, and that's partly why I'm interested in these spaces in particular. That makes researching smuggling in these areas easier, because it is so visible, because it is so present, um, because it is hard not to see it, and because it is uh, somewhat at least in large parts, accept that part of how people locally talk about the economy. You can talk to someone and ask, how's business going? And you're going to be talking about the smuggling economy relatively easily. So I think thinking about how smuggling is talked about in the spaces where you operate is a really important part of this. I think spending a lot of time in these spaces is an important part of it, um, coming back to it again and again, giving people a sense that you're not someone who's been around for a week. Um, I think people have precon preconceptions about the type of foreigners who comes to border regions and asks questions about smuggling and trying to um, trying to convince people that's not who you are is very time consuming. It, um, people have had very bad experiences with journalists often. So convincing people you're not a journalist uh, can take a while and be quite time consuming. Um, and I think also with it, with time learning the language of how people about smuggling locally is useful, um, how people frame things, but also what you can and can't ask. So one of the things that I think has been quite important for my project is that I'm interested in how things are regulated, how they're structured, how uh, the rules and arrangements. So I'm interested in a lot of things that are quite well known, at least locally, that are talked about a lot locally, and consequently that um, are easier to ask about. 
So it's much easier to ask someone, how do people meet their supplier than ask someone, yeah, so who's the, what's the name of your supplier? Right. So I think trying to pick up on these things over, over time becomes quite helpful. But there's also, I think it's important to be frank, that there's a good amount of luck involved. There's a good amount of um, getting some people that begin to trust you, begin to understand what your project is and recommend you to other people. Um, so there's a little bit of that involved as well. And um, I think it's it's important to be frank about that. Great. So let's talk about the the meat of the book then. So this is not just a kind of a, a description of smuggling, but you've got theoretical ideas about what this tells us about the nature of the state and the nature of borders. Walk us through a little bit about, you know, kind of what you are trying to argue at this theoretical level. Sure. So the I think frustration that I started the project with um, as kind of a, a structural political economist who's also interested in smuggling is that we have this wonderful wealth of studies, um, both in the Middle East, but also especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, who provide these detailed regulatory descriptions of how smuggling works in practice in different borderlands. And coming out of them, we often have these kind of very broad claims that, and this is what it means for state building, for capitalism, for, for Africa. Um, and I try to think of how we can develop this more systematically. And I think the book is an attempt to show how I think that can be done. And what I draw on is um, political settlement theory that provides an account of how regulatory institutions and especially informal regulatory institutions generate rents and how these are um, then being channeled to support uh, overarching political structures and coalitions. And that is what the book tries to do. It tries to first um, give an account of the institutions that regulate smuggling locally. And in doing that, it also tries to make a couple of points of the surprising power of informal institutions, which you know, obviously is a whole other debate in political science. And we often think of them as rules in force, as these kind of smaller ad hoc arrangements. And one of the points that the books try to make is that these kind of smaller ad hoc arrangements regulate quite substantial amounts of uh, illegal and informal trade in North Africa. They don't regulate all of it. I think it's also important to be clear about the limitations of the regulatory argument. A lot of it is regulated. Some of it is not. The smuggling of, for example, guns or narcotics uh, does not necessarily fall under the same kind of institutional structures and deals and arrangements through which the smuggling of carpets or the um, Hello Kitty backpack falls. But these institutions exist. They're informal. Some of them are written. Most of them are unwritten. Um, but one of the key effects that they have, aside from deciding what can and can't be smuggled, is who makes how much money off it. And that's the second part of the argument. It then looks at, okay, so if this is being tolerated, if this is being regulated, and it often is with the explicit awareness of the state, um, why is that happening? And so political settlement theory would suggest that we start looking at rents. We start looking at who's benefiting from it. And there's a variety of actors involved. There are the security services who benefit enormously from this. Um, the number of roadblocks and check checkpoints throughout borderlands in the region is substantial, and the amount of money made in them is, is similarly quite, quite enormous. Um, there are elites who benefit from it. Um, both uh, regimes over time have managed to uh, insert political elites and economic elites into lucrative part of smuggling networks. But the part of it that I think is not just the most interesting and the most overlooked, but the bit of it that really bites, the bit of it that really kind of gives it its primary political function is the benefits to the wider population. Smuggling is a dominant, it can, has in, for many years in both countries been a dominant economic network in areas that have been at the outside of formal political settlements, areas that have seen little formal investment for most of the post-independent period in both Tunisia and Morocco. So smuggling has functioned quite explicitly and with the quite explicit awareness of pretty much everybody involved as an economic alternative for these regions. And as a consequence of that, the inclusion of these regions into the wider state building set, uh, kind of project in both countries has been under the explicit understanding that if no substantial formal support is forthcoming, 
then these informal arrangements are an alternative to that. They are presented as an alternative to that. And as a consequence, we have a kind of a very different role of smuggling in state though, right. where it is certainly has subversive aspects. It causes certain fragilities for many people involved. I am absolutely not advocating for state building by smuggling, um, but it is a part of a legacy and a history of that particular type of state building. So the book is also trying to understand what that is and then trying to think about what happens when that changes, because especially the last decade in both case studies, and I'm assuming we'll talk about that a, a bit more in a bit, um, has been a period of substantial changes. So it's also been a period to observe how that is being negotiated and the demands that emerge when that is collapsing. So that is, I think, some of the attempts to kind of build a wider political economy model to build a wider understanding of what the function of smuggling is in both countries. But I think one of the things that's that's almost I think, most interesting about the book is, is not about smuggling at all. Um, and that is about the distributional consequences of informal institutions more generally. And I think smuggling is a great example of that, but I think we have a lot of other examples of that in the region. If we look at uh, Tunisia and Morocco, but, but quite a bit of, of the Middle East and North Africa more broadly, we have these legacies of how economies in these regions are structured that when looked at from the outside or when looked at with kind of perfect theories of economic development, they look like, like deviances from that. And smuggling is an example of that. Informal economies more broadly are an example of that. Cannabis plantation is an example of that. But also, for example, in Tunisia, if we think about the way that people have been hired into the civil, um, into the civil administration historically, for purely distributional reasons, not for merit reasons. For example, if someone in that family was killed in an attack or so on. We can also look at all these things. We can look at features of the wider Tunisian state. And I think it's easy to think of these as, as problems to be tackled, as, as deviances, as things that need to be formed and you know gotten rid of. But it's important to look at the distributional consequence of them, that these are all mechanisms of economic governance, of political governance. These are mechanisms through which people have been included into political projects. And that means that addressing them means more than just turning off the tap. It means providing alternative inclusion for those people who have been included through this tap. It means addressing this as, as a legacy, as a livelihood challenge, rather than a law and order problem. So I think smuggling is a case study of that, but it's by far not the only one. No, it's really interesting. And you make a point early on when you you say this isn't just about like corrupt, you know, petty corrupt officials or that sort of thing, that there's a lot more going on than just that. You also make an extended argument and you hinted at it a moment ago, but I want to draw it out a little bit more that it's not necessarily a sign of, of state weakness or of incipient state failure, the way that many people talk about it in the more maybe sensationalist uh, readings of these uh, kind of cross-border uh, uh, movements. So talk about that a little bit and the relationship between kind of smuggling and kind of state capacity, state strength and state fragility. Yeah, so there's a there's an interesting we're, we're living through an interesting era in thinking about smuggling and and state building and there's a there's an American political scientist Peter Andreas who's made this um, argument very powerfully in the U.S. context mm -hmm. and as someone who lives in the U.K. and we've gone through um, uh, very strong politicization of our border security and people who come through our borders over the last decade. And so it sometimes feels like the, these topics are coming coming home in, in a variety of ways. So we're living through an interesting area where globally, the idea that complete and perfect border control is a sign of a strong and healthy state is potentially the, a sign of a functioning state. And any, any um, admission of the opposite is a sign of a dysfunctional state. I think um, Trump had a line along the lines, of, if you don't have a border, you don't have a state. Mm -hmm. um, that's a historical anomaly. That is a historical absurdism to the degree that like, the idea that states have completely controlled their border in an absolute manner, that nothing has come through, that states have not uh, allowed through, that nothing has come through that um, has not been uh, vetted, that nothing comes through that's not perfectly in line with the law. That's, it's very hard to find ex historical examples of that ever happening anywhere. The idea of that happening across the type of large borders that we see across the world as a metric for the strength of the state is 
adventurous. If we think of Tunisia's border with, with um, Algeria or Libya, these are enormous borders across an enormous territory. And you can invest an unseemly amount of money into building walls and various other bits of infrastructure around them. But first of all, it's highly dubious whether that infrastructure is actually effective. One of the things that we've certainly seen um, in both of these case studies, but really across research on smuggling, is the spectacular ineffectiveness of border infrastructure and particularly border walls. So I think thinking of that as a measuring stick for state strength and state capacity is entirely unrealistic. Interestingly enough, it's incredibly politically powerful. Making smuggling the external enemy is incredibly powerful populist rhetoric. It externalizes threats. It uh, is very good at raising money for security solutions, um, but it also positions politicians as in, in between you know, law and order and the external threat to it, the threat that's also not coming from the nation but from the outside. So it's incredibly politically powerful, but it is not how border security usually works. And one of the ways in which border security is usually worked in practice in both Tunisia and Morocco is through tolerating some things and cracking down on others. And that tolerating some things has also existed in coordination with border communities, in coordination with smugglers. In, it has included letting certain people trade across the border, but also using these people to inform on, you know, if something's coming through that's not meant to come through. Uh, establishing some kind of red lines. Now, that's not always the most effective way of doing things. And I'm not, again, I'm not advocating for this as a, as a strategy to, to rely on. But it is a central part of how border communities have been integrated into border security. And it means if that breaks down, there is something that's missing. And thinking of strengthening states through formal border security only, and there's heavy investment in that, where there's a lot of international money going to into border walls and border security. That looks like state building from a distance, but if you look at it locally, it risks undermining the relationship between these states and border communities, which in itself is a very central part of state building. And it risks not only making these borders less secure, but also upsetting the relationship between already marginalized communities and states. No, that's a really fascinating point. Uh, one more, one, one last uh, kind of question to draw out before we get to the cases. And that's that you're not only talking about the borders themselves, because once the goods are smuggled, they also need to be sold. And so you also discuss in the book um, the uh, kind of the informal markets and uh, kind of that can, that can extend far into the country itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the consequences of the fact that a lot of these goods that are smuggled are consumer goods is that they need to find consumer markets. And the second a good crosses the border, this whole apparatus springs into, into order that tries to get them towards a location that a regular consumer would buy something from. So if you're trying to um, smuggle and distribute ecstasy, there are ways of doing that are quite clandestine. If you're trying to smuggle and sell desk lamps, uh, people are less willing to buy them uh, from you out of the back of a van or in the back of the club or wherever else you might be willing to buy narcotics from. Um, so smuggle goods immediately in both Tunisia and Morocco, but again, they're by far not the only places where this is true, get integrated into these uh, consumer distribution systems. And uh, in both Tunisia and Morocco, Another informal traditional institution, which is the weekly market, has been seized upon um, to provide a distribution platform for, for these goods. And these markets often being one of the main sources of income for local municipalities. Municipalities have then set, up, um, set upon regulating these markets as they see as, as their role. And as a consequence, not just regulated the sale of these goods, but also um, somewhat normalized and structured the sale of these goods and uh, often quite actively engaged in various attempts to tax these goods and through the taxation of these goods provide a further kind of officializing channel of for these goods. So tracing the, the path of these goods from the border inland and anyone who's been to Tunisia or Morocco will have been at these kind of Libyan markets uh, as, as you'd refer to them in, in Tunisia um, and has bought goods there. That does not seem like smuggling anymore at that point, right? That feels very far removed from the border. And the process of that um, is, is a process of officializing and normalizing 
through taxation, through resource extraction, not by municipalities, but by security forces and all that. Until then, yeah, what was smuggled at the border now seems quite mundane and ordinary at a market in Tunis. Well, great. So we'll be back uh, in a moment to continue speaking with Max Galeen uh, about his work in Morocco and Tunisia specifically. We're back with Max Galeen to talk about Smugglers and States, just published by Columbia University Press. Um, so, Max, we've been talking a lot about this in the abstract, about uh, about borders and theories and regulation and all of this. But actually, the, the heart of your book is a quite lengthy and quite detailed ethnography of, of, uh, of actual the borderlands in Morocco and Tunisia. So I want to talk about your actual field research and, and the cases themselves. And maybe we can start with um, uh, Morocco. Um, and uh, the communities you studied and what you observed. Basically, tell us about the case. Sure. So the book is covering both Tunisia and Morocco as kind of two comparative case studies. And within both borderlands is looking at different types of smuggling networks. So it's trying to make comparisons both between the two cases and uh, within both cases. And both of them are a little bit different than we would think. Um, if we look at kind of the past 15 years in Tunisia, Politically, it's been extremely um, un unstable or ex extremely eventful, um, to put it mildly. Um, but if we look at the smuggling networks and the relationship between smuggling and the state, there's been quite a lot of stability there. Morocco is the opposite case, where uh, the macro political structure in many ways has been quite um, consistent over the last two decades. But if we look at the role of, the, of smuggling in the country, there's been a lot of change. And I do think. Um, smuggling there provides an interesting entry point into looking at how Morocco's political economy um, in the last 20 years has changed under the surface. And the region I looked at in Morocco, um, the kind of Oriental, which is in, in the northeast, and it borders Algeria, and it borders um, the Spanish enclaves, is um, a region that has historically been extremely dependent on smuggling. Um, both of gasoline, particularly from Algeria, but also um, a variety of different consumer goods, both um, via the free ports in Spain and via Algeria as well. It's been extremely dependent on that. And a lot of the rural border communities have really formed around that trade, have kind of moved to the border, been extremely dependent on that. And what has really happened in Morocco over the past decade is that a lot of that trade has collapsed. A lot of that trade has collapsed due to border infrastructure, um, due to the changing wider political economy in Morocco, um, due to kind of some global factors, free trade arrange, uh, agreements. And um, it consequently presents an interesting case study of what happens when smuggling, which has been so dominant locally, um, gets faced with infrastructure changes, but also um, sees uh, large parts of it collapse because it allows us to trace um, the ways people were integrated into the previous system and how they try to adjust to that afterwards. And one of the lessons that comes out of that, as I kind of hinted at earlier, is that border infrastructure is a real issue for some smugglers and not for others. Hmm. So we've seen an enormous amount of creation of border infrastructure on the border between Morocco and Algeria over the last couple of years. Um, and also, uh, if we look at places like Ceuta and Melilla in northern Morocco, there's quite a lot of very heavy EU-funded border infrastructure there. Now, there are no indications that the smuggling of drugs, for example, has in any way diminished across either of those borders. It's still quite substantial. However, a lot of the smaller scale smuggling, a lot of the people who brought gasoline on donkeys uh, type of smuggling, brought gasoline on uh, motorbikes kind of mm -hmm. smuggling, a lot of the kind of consumer goods smuggling, a lot of the smuggling that people in immediate border um, areas were relying on, a lot of that has collapsed. So Morocco then becomes the story of how do you rebuild after that? How do you integrate people into political settlements after that? And there have been attempts by the Moroccan state uh, to do that. There's been a variety of different economic projects, um, often built around kind of agricultural cooperatives to try to do that differently. But it's not really been successful. Um, it's not really been successful in picking up certain communities. And as a consequence, I think Morocco is a really important case study to show that 
smuggling is one particular form of integrating communities into national economic structures, and it's very hard to replicate that. So I think Morocco poses really important questions for us in terms of what do we do next if we don't want smuggling to be the dominant way to integrate borderlands into national political settlements. And there are many good reasons why we might, might not want that to be, right, despite the fact that I kind of talked about the um, regulated nature and the structured nature of smuggling earlier, that does not change the fact that some of it is still very dangerous. Some of it is still very violent. A lot of smugglers... Um, perceive their day-to-day -day as being full of indignities um, and full of, of risks. Um, a, a lot of them would, would prefer a regular formal job. So um, I think looking at what happened in Morocco is, is, is a way to highlight the fragilities involved in that, um, but also difficulties in reintegrating people um, afterwards. It also highlights the differences amongst smugglers. And that's, I think, a, a theme that the book also tries to highlight is that it creates highly unequal economies. And um, that these uh, very different actors in these very unequal economies um, are able to react to the collapse of smuggling networks very differently. So I mentioned the fact that, you know, the people who work in, in narcotics might not have stopped altogether. But amongst those people who are forced to stop, um, those who've been able to accumulate substantial amount of capital um, before uh, the collapse of their respective smuggling industries uh, are able usually quite well to reinvest that in the formal economy quite heavily. So laundering money, in, especially in the northern Moroccan context, is not very difficult. Um, and some people have gotten very, very wealthy and uh, have gotten uh, a, a role in the formal economy, including economic and, and political power. While um, a lot of the people who are lower in the structures of um, some of these smuggling economies have uh, not been able to really adjust. And they are now real spots of marginalization and destitution and disillusionment um, in these border regions that, from a developmental perspective, is incredibly difficult to address. And I think we see some attempts of Morocco trying that quite seriously. We don't see attempts of Morocco doing it particularly well. We don't see attempts of anyone doing that particularly well. It's something if, if someone wants to throw some money at funding some kind of research globally, looking at how to do that well is something that's become, become extremely relevant in a lot of places, and we don't have a lot of good case studies. Now, in terms of the case studies that you did do, um, kind of looking at your field sites, uh, just to, to quote you, um, the two regions offer geographic variation containing three structurally different borderlands, one urban, one rural, one urban, two rural, one closed border, two open ones. So walk us through the difference that those make um, in terms of closed open borders, urban, rural environment, like what kinds of smuggling do you see enabled or disabled by these, uh, these environments? So the interesting thing is that, um, while the borderlands are quite different, um, the type of smuggling we see when it is kind of politically open and when, um, it, uh, these, these networks are still existent, is not that different. We see similar goods coming across all of these different borderlands. And again, that says something interesting about infrastructure. Um, we see a lot of smuggling through um, the border between um, Melia and as well as Ceuta into Morocco. Both of these are incredibly fortified borders um, with these kind of very small turnstiles through which you can through. Um, and yet uh, smuggling has for many years, it's collapsed more recently, but has for many years existed through these um, turnstiles where hundreds of people would line up in the morning um, on one side of the border um, with kind of big packs of goods, sometimes little bags from supermarkets, but often prepackaged bundles that have been given to them by wholesalers. Mm -hmm. And they would line up, they'd be lined up by the Spanish police just to make sure that they don't interfere with traffic and kind of slowly move these goods through through these borderlands. And one of the, the picture on the cover of the book is um, a scene of the Span or Spanish police trying to kind of structure and regulate the smuggling just because it employs so many people because everybody is going through these little um, openings in, in the border. Um, so that is an incredibly fortified urban border. And yet we see through there carpets and clothes and, you know, supermarket food stuff and uh, kinder eggs and all these things um, moving through to the other side in, in very large bulk. 
Um, I think one of the differences that we see with open borderlands that we don't see with an urban, highly structured border is um, what we call these kind of cat and mouse games. Um, so this is really a border where you're either going through a kind of pre-agreed arrangement uh, with customs through through the border crossing, or you are working through for someone who uh, has an enormous amount of capital and um, you're going through kind of a different deal. Um, if you have a wide open borderland, kind of a desert borderland, the way you have it between Tunisia and Libya, um, you might be able to generally get away without being detected. You might uh, be able to kind of drive your cars through the desert without being detected. Um, that might work for you one night, might work for you the second night. Um, it's not going to work for you every night. Right. So in these borderlands, the type of deals and arrangements we need to look at isn't just um, the kind of person-to-person -person meeting with someone at the border and the deals and arrangements that structure these meetings, but they're also what happens um, when someone gets chased down by the police and the police gets them. Uh, do you think they get confiscated? Uh, do you get arrested? Um, what's the bribe there? So again, there are kind of certain deals and arrangements that exist there, um, but they can be a little bit more fragile. And especially in these contexts, um, even if there's a broader agreement um, on these kind of cat and mouse games, um, and there's a broader understanding on the side of security forces that a lot of stuff's going to go through here, um, there's also necessity on the side of security forces to occasionally show that uh, they're in charge, um, to occasionally show that they're doing something. There might also just be cases of miscommunication. There might be cases of some conflict with some parts of smuggling networks and others. What I'm trying to find a long way around of saying is that these exchanges can be very, very violent, and people have died in both of these borderlands um, in, in not small numbers over the last few decades. Um, and all that regulation doesn't, doesn't negate that. Um, the other thing that's really important to say about that is that the people who have died and the people who are taking most of the risk there are not the ones who make most of the money. Uh, they tend to be lower level people within these networks, um, while kind of the higher higher um, income positions tend to be more on the side of the people who finance these transactions, who make the connections and so on. So if we think of the risks and limitations, but also indignities of the fact that borderlands have been relying on smuggling economies so much, the effects on people in these open borderlands who navigate between these regulated but fragile and changing and not always entirely predictable agreements is a really important thing to mention. Yeah, in terms of like these, the the, the potential for violence and like, uh, you also see this, of course, in some in these informal markets where, you know, there's uh, plenty of instances in recent years where you've had the police suddenly storming and clearing out markets that had been kind of regular features of of life in that area. And it often seems quite unpredictable um, when this is going to happen. Yeah, so I think that is both in the borderlands, but also in informal markets, for street vendors, for informal economies more broadly. That's a really good illustration of the risk when you're informally integrated into a political settlement. Right. When the deal under which your livelihood um, is available to you is not written down and you can't go to a court and sue for it. Um, but it is dependent on the toleration of the security services. It's dependent on the toleration of the state. And as a consequence, it can change. And not only can it change, but when it changes, you're going to look like the criminal on television, um, while the other side is going to look like law and order. And I think especially, that... Especially when, as you said before, there's such a political incentive to scapegoat uh, migrants, and uh, it's quite popular to uh, you know make an issue out of this. Look at uh, Kais Saeed in Tunisia and uh, his demonization of African migrants, which included attacks on vendors and the like. So it's not maybe as random as it seems. Absolutely. And it's not just a Tunisian story. Uh, unfortunately, especially these kind of street clearing operations um, have become a really dominant feature of especially 
populist authoritarian politics across the world. We see that in Ghana, we see that in Nigeria, we see that everywhere. Um, the part of the story that's really important because it is quite Tunisian is that uh, if we go back to the often retold um, starting point of the 2010-2011 um, revolution in Tunisia and Mohamed Bouazizi's altercation with um, a state officer around something that he might not have been legally allowed to do, uh, but that his livelihood depended on. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that this is such a central part of the uh, of the kind of economy of Tunisia, both structurally through people being integrated into a wider political settlement through informal institutions around the economic livelihoods, but also emotionally through the experience of being at the mercy of that, I think is also a really good explanation of why that became so symbolic and why that symbol became so powerful. One of the kind of side quests of my research that's not in the book is that I was in um, Morocco in Al Hosema um, when the protests after the death of Mohsen Fikri um, uh, broke out, uh, which then sparked a wider protest movement um, in, in northern Morocco at the time. It was colloquially referred to as, uh, as the Iraq, which um, then, you know, in popular parlance has been eclipsed by the Iraq in, in Algeria. Um, but it was really noticeable that not only were people at the protest, uh, protests around this death of an informal fish vendor. So he had, um, he was an informal fish vendor in Hosima. He had his goods um, confiscated by the police. Uh, they threw them in a, in a, a garbage compactor. Um, and he dove in after his merchandise into the garbage compactor, which was then turned on. So he um, died uh, brutally and, and tragically. And it resonated similarly um, to the story of Mohamed Bazizi. It really resonated with the local population that had a long history and a long narrative of being economically marginalized, mm -hmm. being dependent on these type of informal uh, economic arrangements, and having had this experience of um, being at the mercy of security services in order to be able to live. So they really felt a strong kind of understanding, not just the Bazizi story and people were singing the, the Tunisian national anthem, um, but uh, also of kind of the wider experience of, of informal and illegal work across the region, including smuggling. No, it's fascinating. It actually is a way of going back to something, uh, one of your chapters, which uh, we kind of jumped over, which is kind of the, the, the morality of smuggling and the different ways that uh, people think about like what's right, what's wrong. And, you know, kind of the, the, you know, they don't simply have this blanket idea that smuggling is wrong, but they don't tolerate everything. Yeah, I really struggled writing that chapter yeah. because I wanted to come up with a neat narrative and there really isn't one. I think there's a tendency in writing about smuggling in border communities to write about the border communities and the smugglers and here's what they think and here's their view of the world. Um, but I think what I found was that there's really an enormous amount of diversity in that and people in border communities find a wide variety of ways of drawing the line between what they think is permitted and uh, what isn't. That is often framed in religious terminology, but I don't think people's religious beliefs are the only factor that drives that. I think it's it's people's own experiences. Um, and you'll find people telling you that all smuggling is, is not permitted. You'll find people telling you that uh, paying the bribe, uh, 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 going across the border, is that's haram, that's not okay. But then selling the goods later on is fine. Um, and um, you'll have some people who make a distinction between drugs and alcohol and the smuggling of carpets. Um, you have a variety of different ways to which people break it down. What a lot of people have in common, and some people frame that religiously, some people frame that in, in a more secular manner, is this question of alternatives. Um, and I think the morality of smuggling is tied up in a question of alternatives. It's if I have nothing else, if there's no other option for here for me, if there's no factory, there's no other livelihood, then I have to feed my family. This is the only option I've been given. And that is a really, really powerful, really common narrative. And that becomes really important when smuggling starts to collapse because people um, will then turn to the state and go, well, this, this is the only alternative you gave me that's collapsing. So now you have to give me something else. So I think that really shows how the way people understand and evaluate smuggling locally is also connected to how people think about the state and the role of the responsibility of the state in order to provide and secure livelihoods in, in border communities. 
No, that, that's very interesting. Um, so, you know, kind of looking at this and uh, you, one of the things the book does, as you said earlier, is you're tracing how things change over this 20 year period. And um, and you've talked a lot about the hardening of borders, uh, usually in, in terms of security. And I know the book isn't about um, about uh, the movement of peoples. And, and that's, you know, that's important. But I do wonder if there's like lessons here for how, how we think about that kind of movement, um, especially given the intense security focus of so many European governments um, on uh, movement of migrants through these particular countries. Um, cause it must, it must be hard to separate that out in practice. Yes. I think there are, there are connections, there are lessons. Um, Mark, I'm incredibly careful, uh, in talking about this just because I'm aware that I have colleagues who speak about the migration side of it so much better than I do and who, um, spent a lot of time doing incredibly difficult work, um, to, uh, work on this. And I don't really talk to migrants that much um so i'm i'm a little bit careful drawing these these consideration uh, these 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 kind of parallels but, but i, I think what they... more about how the states approach them and mm-hmm. kind of think about this in terms of like the states and the borders rather than the experience of the migrants themselves which obviously is a an enormous topic um which we we can't touch on now but in terms of the institutions the informal institutions and the like it just seems to me there's got to be some really interesting uh implications um, yeah, I think there's a couple. I think one is if we think about borderlands more specifically. Um, so if we think about borderlands as spaces that have been neglected um, in terms of their access to formal rent streams, yeah. uh, and they've been looking for alternative informal rent streams, smuggling has always been one of them. In some areas, northern Morocco, uh, cannabis cultivation has been another. Um, migration has always been a third. Um, so we also see uh, often um, similarity between border regions and regions that are overrepresented uh, in terms of their um, historical um, proportion of migration, especially towards Europe. So in, in southern Tunisia, obviously, um, places like Zarzis um, have, have always had that kind of history of outward migration. Um, the same is true for places like Nador in, in northern Morocco. Um, and that is very much one of the reactions we're now seeing um, in terms of people reacting to what is currently kind of the crisis of smuggling in the region, the fact that a lot of smuggling networks are collapsing for a variety of reasons, which includes these new border infrastructure, but also kind of wider global economic changes and also particularly the conflict in Libya. So we also see people um, migrating out of these borderlands as, as one of the reactions to that. The other connection, I think, obviously, is that both are tied up in a global discourse around security and around a certain nature of what a state is um and these discourses i think are partly political as we've talked about quite a bit now and and a bit of political posturing um i think they're also often an ignorance of um the experiences of the people who go through these systems um and i think that's why both of those are areas where, where research is really central in order to help people understand what actually happens at these barriers and that's something that looks like a and a war that nothing goes through isn't necessarily a war that nothing goes through, but also that's something that looks relatively structured and regulated can be incredibly violent and difficult for the for the people involved. Um, and the final bit is, I think, this reliance from states on informal structures and informal institutions, on the fact that um, as uh, a municipal bureaucrat in Bengal once nicely put it, and it's, it's his his words, and I wish I could put it as as well, um, it's this idea that um, the, the idea is that the law is what um, secures social peace, but uh, here it's never done that. Um, that the, this idea that um, formal institutions themselves are not enough to make the formal state uh, stand up. And that all these other things are tolerated by states um, because they are convenient, because they're politically convenient or um, because the alternative is too difficult. And if we look at the structures around the European Union in terms of migration um, from a very, very kind of bird's eye view, we see formal infrastructure and we see formal laws. But we also see a lot of reliance on informal structures and operations and on informal risks in order to manage migration into Europe in order to make it extremely costly and difficult and undignified for people to to come to Europe. So I think this complicity complicity in um, often very violent processes 
um, and the toleration of these processes, um, while at the same time framing them as something that's outside of the state and that's deviant, while the state is still complicit in them. I think that is a, a really important parallel between the smuggling of goods and the smuggling of people. And one last question then is you you mentioned earlier in in our conversation and in other contexts as well that um you know kind of the the absence of political science from many of the debates about smuggling is something that you'd like to see corrected and you do see this wave of new researchers who are you know trying to grapple with this and and uh, and to kind of bring it back in so, or to bring it in so to speak and one of the things which really strikes me is how kind of cross uh, cross regional and um, kind of genuinely global a lot of those discussions are you mentioned my old friend Peter Andreas you know writing by the US Mexico border writing about uh, you know and then you talked about people writing about you know Nigeria and Ghana and that sort of thing and I wonder if uh, you know as you try and navigate kind of your hyper local ethnography of of these towns in locales in in the Maghreb um, and drawing kind of bigger global lessons for it. Do you have any like final thoughts that you want you want to leave us with about how you navigate the local to the global these these issues of scale and comparability as uh, you know we kind of bring these ideas out into the broader discipline. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I already feel incredibly grateful that I get to plug this book on this podcast. I mean, there's another book we did a couple of years ago called The Routledge Handbook of Smuggling. Uh, if I can plug that as well. <laughs> uh, it's available entirely uh, for free online um, on smuggling.page. So what we try to do with the book was try to bring people from different regions together. And um, one of the things that I've really benefited from in doing this work is that there's phenomenal work on smuggling being done in, in other regions by people who are taking risks that I can't imagine taking and doing this under difficult conditions that I couldn't imagine. Um, and that there's been, um, over the last couple of years, more and more connection between these people. And I think that is the way forward because doing detailed ethnography in two case sites, like I did for this book, is already a lot. And um, I, I'm not sure I've been able to do it full justice. Doing it in more than that uh, becomes extremely difficult. So I think the only way methodologically towards more comparative work is more collaborative work. And we don't see a ton of that yet. We see edited volumes and, and panels, and that's great. Um, but I think doing more genuinely collaborative work across different regions is, is really important. It's also because that was the point I made um, earlier on, the ethnography is always um, shaped by positionality and the ethnography that I'm going to do is always going to be different. I mean, there's there's a book to be done on gender and smuggling in, in Tunisia and Morocco that I cannot do in the way I'd like to. Um, and um, so I think bringing these different perspectives together is, is really, really helpful. I think the other thing that's important is that we stay methodologically open-minded. Um, smuggling is always going to be a field where some methodologies that are really powerful in other areas are just diff difficult to implement. Um, where numbers are often difficult to come by. Um, so I think that is is the second really, really important part. And I think the third, and that's um, both the sad thing and a thing that's bringing people together, is a recognition of crisis. It's a recognition that um, a lot of people who work on smuggling, be that around migration, be that around the smuggling of goods, are seeing a lot of hardship and are seeing a lot of indignity in the places they're working in. And um, as terrifying as that is, it is something to talk to other people about who work on some of the things. And it is something that I've seen uh, people connect over. And um, hopefully that will lead to um, more work across regions and uh, hopefully better answers. Well, great. I hope so, too. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Max Galeen about his new Columbia University Press book, Smugglers and States Negotiating the Maghreb at Its Margins. <laughs>